1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. Verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we will sorry, that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to have you with us today on the long weekend. And as promised in recent weeks, we're coming out of Easter, taking a further look at the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We've looked at the resurrection of Jesus from several angles already and considered much of the evidence of why we believe that thinking, intellectually honest people committed to historical accuracy, reason and logic can and indeed should believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. Those sermons are already up online and if you're yet to be convinced of such things, our life series starting in a few weeks is a great place to bring all your questions and consider the evidence together. But for this morning and next week as well with Adam Smith, we're looking at how the resurrection changes the way that we live today. The cash value, if you like, both as an encouragement to those who are already followers of Jesus, to go deeper with Jesus and push beyond some of those plateaus we sometimes get uh, stuck on as Christians. And for those considering who Jesus is for the first time with us, or listening along online, my heart for you today is that you at least come to a point of seeing why someone would want this to be true. To grasp why Christians love Jesus, are prepared to take their stand with him, to take risks with him today, to live different lives and putting our hope in a very different place from where our world generally does today. So we're starting with the big one today, seeing how the Christian hope in Jesus' resurrection and ours transforms grieving and death. I'd put it to all of us today that our generation in our part of the world are particularly ill-equipped to deal with grieving and death. We've made an art form out of sanitising death. Uh, Very few of us have been confronted uh, with a dead body and it is confronting. We tend to hide away our sick and our dying as a society and in an unspoken way, of course, I reckon we almost kind of set them the goal of dying in the least traumatic way possible for us who are still living. For a society largely indifferent or quite opposed to any talk of spiritual matters and rather unaware of the basics of the Christian faith, 
When it comes to funerals without Jesus, so many resort to empty sentiments of loved ones having travelled over the horizon with you know, the wind at their back and the road rising up to meet them. Or we speak loosely of loved ones looking down with us with a smile, always being with us from some sort of heavenly existence without suffering. And sadly, behind the sentiment, we kind of expect others to put a brave public face uh, on things. And the death of a loved one, a partner, a child, a parent, can be totally devastating and people suffer in silence and it leaves many with lasting scars. There's genuine care and concern, of course, for the grieving. But without Jesus, our world has no words of true comfort and settles for vague hopes and empty sentiment without any supporting evidence. We've been asking across these last four weeks, can life be different to how we're currently experiencing it? And I want to say right up the front today, a very big yes for those considering the claims around Jesus and the hope that he offers. Yet also for the follower of Jesus, long time or short, my hope today is that we can connect our head and our hearts a little more closely, aligning our convictions about Jesus with our emotional health as we too live with grief and death this side of Jesus' return. So let's get into it. You'll find an outline of where we're going in the leaflet you would have received on the way in. And if you've got your Bibles there in front of you, great to have them open to page 1188 as we look at our main text for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as you turn there and as we jump into this short letter, I just want to tie it in with what we know from the rest of the Bible that Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica where he spent quite a short time uh, teaching people about Jesus. It's thought only a few weeks. Many people became believers there, yet their Jewish opponents stirred up trouble for Paul and his companions and a riot broke out into the city, so they had to move on in the dark of night for their own safety. And Paul is so concerned about new believers there that after a while he sends his young apprentice, uh, Timothy, to strengthen them. And Timothy spends some time with them and reports back to Paul that they're remaining faithful to Jesus in a difficult time, taking their stand with Jesus. So Paul writes this letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians to express his joy in the Thessalonians' faith and to further strengthen them in the gospel. He practically instructs them uh, in how the gospel changes our approach to sexual ethics, our attitude to work, as the Thessalonians are called to pursue holy lives and to live in such a way that develops a good reputation in the wider community. And then in today's passage, he seeks to address a specific pastoral concern that must have been passed on to him about the Thessalonians. Uh, Perhaps uh, by Timothy would seem logical. He doesn't want them to, verse 13, be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Concluding this short instruction to them with the call, verse 18, to encourage one another with these words. So we can see here the Apostle Paul is writing with a specific pastoral heart 
to bring practical comfort and encouragement, not to satisfy the theological eccentricities of those fascinated with the end times and how Jesus' second coming fits in with it all. There's a pastoral heart behind this. It's obvious enough that the Thessalonians are grieving fellow believers that had placed their trust in Christ and who have subsequently died, those who sleep in death, as Paul puts it. And death is always hard on us, to be sure. But I think it takes us a little unpacking to work out why the Thessalonians need further teaching on this point from Paul to be comforted. And it's kind of always a little challenging to read back into things what the underlying question was, but here's my best effort. (laughs) Because it's actually crucial when we read our Bibles to try and understand what's going on to the first readers of Scripture before we apply things to ourselves. So I would say I am confident this isn't the first the Thessalonians had heard about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of those who placed their trust in him. So he's not telling them something uh, new, that believers have eternal life. I don't think uh, from reading the Apostle Paul and his preaching in the book of Acts that you could believe Paul would be with someone more than 10 minutes without sharing them this, never mind uh, a few weeks. And as we see examples um, uh, of how Paul sort of interacts and also in uh, the letter already that that we haven't read this morning uh, to the Thessalonians... Uh, the resurrection kind of comes up a number of times. The end of chapter 2 of this letter, Paul talks about the Thessalonians very warmly as the apostles' joy and crown, that they will future glory in the presence of Jesus uh, with them and in them when he comes. I think there is a question of how imminently Paul and the Thessalonians expected Jesus' return. And some early believers, and perhaps the Apostle Paul, at least in his earlier letters, uh, expected it fairly shortly. So it is possible that a young church, with a very short amount of teaching, were uncertain with what happened to believers who died before Jesus' return. However, I also think that's pretty uh, unlikely, because if they'd had questions about that, they had had Timothy with them uh, for some time, And I'm sure he could have sorted something uh, like that out fairly straightforwardly. So my first observation then on trying to work out what question is Paul answering here is uh, that Paul focuses quite heavily on the order of events uh, at Jesus' second coming. Take a look at it with me. Verse 14, he talks of Jesus bringing those who have fallen asleep in him when he returns... And then verse 15, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, already I feel it that I'm probably raising more questions than I'm answering at this stage, so let's try and work through them briefly. Firstly, it's good to point out that some Christians throughout church history have come to the conclusion that uh, as Christians die before Jesus' return, as they have for almost 2,000 years now, that they're dead and will rise to eternal life upon Jesus' return. And in isolation, you can see how a passage like today's might lead people to such a conclusion. With Christ coming down from heaven, verse 16, the trumpet sounding, the dead in Christ rising first 
I kind of get how that could lead you there. So the the reference to Christians sleeping in death is taken to mean by some that as you die as a believer, your next conscious thought comes on the day of Jesus' second coming, which we too await. And if that's true, so be it. Yet I think it fails to take into account a whole range of other bits in the Bible that suggest something else. Uh, Just this Easter, we've been working through Luke's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And as the thief very famously asks Jesus to remember him on the cross as he's dying, remember me, Jesus, as you come into your kingdom, Jesus says, quite famously, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Which reads very present day, doesn't it? You place your trust in Jesus, you're with him forever, he never lets you go. Uh, Jesus' story in a a place like uh, Luke 16 about Lazarus, you can read it later and I've put the reference in your outline there. But Jesus speaks in that story of the very real existence of people in both heaven and hell running concurrently with our world today as we know it. The Apostle Paul, who wrote our Thessalonian letter, brings up a couple of times his kind of inner desire that amongst a pretty difficult life as an apostle, that he's kind of looking forward to the day when his life sort of comes to its conclusion so that he can be with Jesus. And there's references there too in your outline, because they all speak to a very present passing from this world to the next upon our death and being immediately with Christ. And also, I would just add one more, that with my kind of theological lens on, much New Testament, much of the New Testament seeks to help us grasp the extraordinary reality and blessing that flow for us being made one with Christ, united in Him together, that sort of in Christ kind of turn of phrase runs right across the New Testament. And really our job as Christians today is to try and kind of grasp it and lean into it and realise how much of a blessing that is. I personally find it hard to believe that Jesus having united us with himself in in such an amazing way that we still struggle to grasp would then allow us to be separated from him by death until his second coming. So if I'm right about that... (laughs) What then is going on in 1 Thessalonians that they are so concerned about that Paul would write to them that they need correcting on? Well, I think there are two things going on. Firstly, as younger Christians, I think they are struggling to connect what they believe and how they feel when faced with the death of loved ones. We do it all the time. We should get that. And as many of us experience, death still does hurt a great deal as a Christian. Grief is a very real thing. The pain of it, the cutting off of relationship hurts. And Jesus, of course, wept as he saw death's grief come upon those who grieved Lazarus's death, even though he knew he was about to display his resurrection power over death by bringing him back to life again. Death only exists in our world because of our rebellion against God and our sin. And it's our primary experience 
of God's outworking of his wrath against our world's rebellion. I think death shouts to us in our pain that something is very wrong here and it shouldn't be so. Quite rightly, the Thessalonians and us can do with some encouragement to allow what we believe about Jesus, that those who are dead to us, who have fallen asleep in him, Christ, to use Paul's euphemism, we can do with the encouragement to know that Jesus will bring them with him as he returns, ushering in a new heavens and earth that are without everything that spoils and mars our existence today. That little ding reminds me, I get today will probably prompt lots of questions. You can send them in via our SMS line. It is um, anonymous and I'll do my best to answer them after uh, the sermon today. But we and the Thessalonians can do with this great encouragement to take what we know about Jesus and feel a very practical and real encouragement that those of us who have lost people in Christ will see them again on the day of Jesus' second coming. Death itself will be conquered on that day. So I think part of what's going on here, the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Thessalonians and us align our beliefs with our very sure and certain hope that we have in Jesus to kind of help us emotionally in life and I think it's an ongoing task for us all but I think it's more than that for the Thessalonians as well I think we can grasp it if we delve into the common practices of the world in the times in which Paul wrote they lived in a time where empires rose and fell where countries and regions were conquered by new rulers And when the newly crowned king was coming into your city, which, you know, most people experience across their lifetime, those who were considered sort of very important and looking forward to their coming would celebrate the coming arrival of this new king. There were often great festivals held for many days, new coins were minted, people would dress up and if you were a person of great importance, you would form part of a delegation that would leave these celebrations, often when that new ruler was still some days, some days away, and you'd head out as a delegation to meet them, sometimes when they were still a long way off. And the partying and feasting and the meeting of this new king, you would then join them in their triumphant procession into your city. So I suspect if that's kind of your common expectation of a coming king that the Thessalonians not only needed to connect their beliefs and their emotional struggle when faced with uh, a very real grief, but further, I suspect, I always try and share things in the level of confidence in which I have them, this is my best explanation, at least for what's going on in Thessalonians, I think on top of their grief, there was a further sense of disappointment that the recently departed will somehow miss out on this awesome celebration. I think they, hopefully they knew that they... Uh, would see them again but I think there's a a secondary sense of loss that this great day was coming it's going to be the most amazing thing to to sort of to meet the Lord Jesus as he comes to inaugurate his kingdom in all of its fullness 
And I suspect there was a sense of uh, disappointment and uncertainty of what would happen to believers who had recently died. Are they going to miss out on this greatest of days? Particularly given many expected still to be alive when Jesus returned. So I think that's why Paul informs them more fully according to the Lord's word, so obviously some instruction that we don't uh, have, I mean, you think about it, Jesus walking around and talking for uh, three years, there's probably plenty that was said that's not recorded to us in the Gospels, but Paul, an apostle appointed by Jesus to speak for him, can say, according to the Lord's word, those that are left alive will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep, that the dead in Christ will rise first and that together those alive and those raised from the dead would head out to meet verse 17 the approaching lord in the air coming in the clouds to reign forever in this new heavens and new earth that together each believer dead or alive upon jesus return is special enough to join that delegation going out to meet the Lord with great celebration when he comes again to reign, meeting him face to face. So I think that's what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians. Yet it doesn't fully answer all of our questions, and I can't cover them all, but fire me on the SMS line. Because I still think we have questions around verse 16 here on the idea of the dead in Christ rising. And how does that kind of fit with our very what I think is a right expectation that upon death as believers we get to immediately be with Jesus. For that we need to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We won't have time to work through the whole passage but it's on page 1155 of your blue Bibles or you can listen along and I'll pop a couple of the key bits up on screen. This is kind of the other kind of go-to passage to think about such things second half of 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul opens in verse 35 he says but someone will ask how are the dead raised and what kind of body will they come thanks Anna well done and uh, the Apostle Paul heads off on a, a long list of illustrations on how a seed has to die to bring new life and how different bodies are fit for different purposes helping us to see that we actually need a different body for eternity, that we need to let the perishable natural body die and then receive an imperishable spiritual body fit for eternity. And all of this happens at Jesus' command in a flash, in a twinkling of the eye. And at the same sounding of the trumpet that we've been reading about in Thessalonians, that imagery Paul uses there as well, it kind of makes sense as you think about it that as at Jesus returns as we're told elsewhere in the Bible that a new heavens and a new earth are created that we dead or alive on that day get new bodies fit for eternity so with that in mind we can hold together I think the immediate upon death all followers of Jesus going to be with Christ and whatever that wonderful existence entails there is you would have to say from these passages a fundamental for all eternity change at the second coming of Jesus new heavens new earth new imperishable bodies fit for eternity I'm very thankful about that (laughs) and it's at this point verse 54 which is up on screen thanks Anna 
when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, that's us, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see here the tight interlinking that to deal with and conquer death, Jesus had to deal with and conquer sin first. As he died on the cross, as our substitute. The greatest swap ever, as we looked at on Good Friday. So if you're here today and wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I really want to encourage you to think carefully here. And I really want to say I think this is a great community in which to think through these things with uh, respect and openness and love and care. But I want to say to you up front that without Jesus, death is still your enemy. It's before us all. Without Jesus, you are in danger and only through Jesus can you be victorious over it. So please take us up on the opportunity to work through it, say perhaps at our next life series, or read through an account of Jesus' life one-to-one over a coffee or a beer with one of our regulars. Because whatever our beliefs about such things, you could liken it to us knowing that this plane we're on that we call life, we know that it crashes one day. And our world tells us that the best you can do is simply try and enjoy it the best you can before it crashes. We're here today and Christians right across the centuries have been here to say that Jesus has a parachute for you. I probably wouldn't have said that because I wouldn't know what flying was and parachutes were. I just realised how (laughs) that came unstuck. But hopefully you get the picture (laughs) that the plane we're on of life is crashing and Jesus has a parachute. It's that clear cut. Without the parachute, you die. With the parachute, you live. I think I'd do you a disservice on putting it any uh, less clearly uh, than that. And for the follower of Jesus, if our understanding of Jesus' second coming from Thessalonians is to bring us comfort in our grief, then the Apostle Paul brings out an equally clear application as he writes to the Corinthian church in verse 58. And I've printed it in your leaflet there for you, also up on screen. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give ourselves, yourselves fully, ourselves, to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Because we know of Christ's victory over death and the glorious eternity that awaits all who put their trust in Christ. What Jesus is doing through his people, his church in the world today is the most important work going on in our city. It's not to devalue all the other great things that we and many others do, but you'd have to say, if Jesus is here offering people a parachute and giving eternal life and he's doing it through his church, 
then what Jesus is doing through his church here on earth, through us, in our workplaces, as we gather, as we fellowship, as we share the gospel with others, is the most important work going on in our world today. Of course, a lot of our energy goes into running a household, uh, loving family, friends, and there's work, in course, which takes up uh, quite a bit of our time that's entirely necessary. Yet we do not need to be half-hearted about using whatever time, gifts and opportunities we have to pursue our work in the Lord. As we take our chances to speak of Jesus with those who know him not. It was great to see so many people inviting others along to Easter. Or you may have the opportunity to read the Bible one-on-one with someone. Let me say, if you get the opportunity, we'll give you the resources and I'll give you my time to, uh, to share what I've learned over the years about doing that well. Or you could invite someone along to life and come with them. But every part of building up God's people is the work of the Lord too. So think of all those down at Summit Camp today, for this weekend, investing in our youth those who come along today and formally or informally warmly welcome uh, people here at church, those who put out chairs, those who use their musical gifts, whatever it is, give yourselves wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord. And as we say to all our newcomers that belong, work out how to love a large group of people in a small way, like serving in those ways uh, just listed, welcoming sound ministry, looking after the little ones in crash. But also work out how to love a small group of people in lots of ways. And caring for one another in our growth groups is one example of how we can do that, opening the Bible together, celebrating God's goodness to us over a meal, caring for each other as we go through grief and suffering, praying for each other. And as we do so, be reminded that our labour for the Lord is not in vain. Because as we build Jesus' church together, which is a privilege for us, God doesn't need us to do it, but he allows us to participate in it. Knowing what God is doing in the world today as he builds his church heading towards that great day of Jesus' return, we know that our labour for the Lord is not in vain. As we live today, however life is going, knowing how it all ends really can change our experience of life today. I was challenged the other week in a sermon when I was listening to someone I really admire. He kind of put it out there that falling into self-pity is quite unbecoming for a Christian. I've been wrestling with this on recent weeks, but here's the line of thought going, and I think I agree with it. But firstly, let me say, of course we grieve, of course we go through great trials. The Psalms, uh, as I preach on quite regularly, do encourage us to look suffering in the eye and tell God how we really feel. But if we return to our plane analogy, if we are the people that know that the plane is crashing and the pilot says, we've got to pile out of here at 5,000 feet and you've got to jump and hands you a parachute. You'd be pretty overjoyed at that moment to receive a parachute, wouldn't you? <laughs> now, if someone at that point spills hot coffee over you in the chaos, 
No doubt it would hurt, you'd be burnt. But in the context of what's going on, you'd work through the pain because you'd just be so overjoyed that I have a parachute, I'm going to live. Suffering in this world is real. God is not unaware of it. The Psalms, prayer, your brothers and sisters in Christ are a great gift for you to help you suffer well. But never fall into self-pity because your best days are always still ahead of you. New heavens, new earth, new body fit for eternity. And as we grieve our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have fallen asleep in the Lord and gone to be with him, know that the day is coming when we'll see the Lord coming on the clouds. The last trumpet will sound. And those still here who trust in Christ will get new bodies fit for eternity. And preceding them will come those who have died in Christ with new bodies too to join us to go out to meet the coming King. Olive, David, Naomi, Paul, Kerry. And sorry, I should stop there, otherwise I'll keep going through all the names here and then leave someone out and they'll be hurt. Sorry, I can't think of everyone that, who is close to you who has trusted in the Lord. But that's just listing a few of some of those who I know who are grieving those who have died in the Lord and gone to sleep with him. Look forward to that great day of a new heavens and a new earth being created. You getting a new body fit for eternity. Like Oprah, you get a new body, you get a new body, you get a new body. (laughs) Everyone gets a new body. And those who are dead to us in Christ will rise with new bodies and join with us in that great assembly together, heading out to meet the coming king who will reign for eternity in a kingdom that will have none of what causes suffering and grief in our world today. That's a truth that really does bring comfort and transform our experience of both death and grieving. So live now, comforted by this. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because our best days are always yet to come. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for these great truths that bring real comfort in our grief. We thank you that they really do transform how we're living today. Please impress these truths in our hearts so that we can line up um, what we know about you and what we believe, our sure and certain hope with our emotional process and journey and health as we live with suffering and grief, as we anticipate uh, Jesus' second coming. We pray for all those uh, here today or listening along online, just wondering whether there's truth behind this whole Jesus thing and whether it makes a difference. Uh, We pray that that many might uh, see that there is real hope here and... um, that many would want to find out whether this is all true, 
knowing that if it is, this truth is wonderful and really does transform our expectations of life today, that we don't need uh, to fear death, we don't need to live in its shadow, uh, that for all who trust in Christ, our best days are still ahead of us. It's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.